Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Good afternoon and welcome to Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO on this Tuesday, March 20th in the year of our Lord, 2018. I am the host for this program. I'm Pastor Charles Henriksen. I'm the pastor of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bonterre, Missouri. If you'd like to find out what's happening at at our congregation just south of St. Louis, go to stmatthewbt.org. And uh, we welcome your participation in our program today. We're, we have a toll-free number all across North America. That toll-free number is 800-730-2727. Again, 800-730-2727. And then locally in St. Louis, the phone number is area code 314-821-0850. Again, 314-821-0850. You can also send us your questions or comments by email. That email address is kfuo at kfuo.org. Today we're going to be talking about the doctrine and practice of repentance, a very appropriate Lenten theme from the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Our guests, uh, frequent guest on this program, my go-to guy whenever uh, I'm lacking a guest, and that is Pastor Warren Worth. Welcome, Warren. Good to be with you again. And you are the pastor where? Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Arnold, Missouri, which is also just a little bit south of St. Louis. Um, and you can find out about our congregation at our, our website, which is goodshepherdarnold.org. Very good. And uh, you brought along one of your parishioners here today, I understand. Uh, yes. Would you like to introduce him? Certainly. The Reverend Dr. John W. Sias is with us today. He is the secretary of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you, and uh, welcome, John. Yeah, good afternoon. It's great to be yeah. on board. So you are a pastor, but you're not serving a congregation. You're serving... 6,000 congregations in a way. That's right. I guess they all have a little piece of me. Yeah. As the, <laughs> what, what do you do as the secretary of the synod? Do you, like, take dictation, or what do you do? I, I, I record the uh, proceedings of the convention, the board of directors, and work in general with the governance of the synod to try to ensure that the decisions that the convention has made over the years actually do govern what synod and its agencies uh -huh. do from day to day. And uh, I know you send out these postcards. I send a lot of postcards. To what, what our churches should be doing to uh, to do our work together. And so uh, is this the calm of the storm before the storm, or are you in the storm already? Because this fall will be the gearing up for nominations and uh, yeah, delegate are. selection and all of that. We are very much ramping up because this is the year of district conventions. So yeah. all the districts are gathering and making their... Uh, decisions and overtures and getting things ready to go up to the Senate convention in summer 2019 in Tampa. So yeah, uh, things so, are on the rails. Get your nominations in. Get your overtures cooking. Yeah. So the district convention cycle usually ends by like the first week in July. And then in the fall will come uh, nominations for Senate-wide offices and uh, 
uh, selecting delegates for the national convention. Yeah, the nomination period is already open, okay. actually, and uh, forms are available on Synod's website, lcms.org. Okay. So. Now, uh, John, you have served as a parish pastor up until just recently when you were elected secretary of the Senate, is that correct? Right, yeah, a year and a half ago I came here to St. Louis, but before that I served a triple parish in eastern Montana. All right, very good. So you have experience as a pastor as well. All right, well, today we're going to be getting into this uh, article on repentance in your Book of Concord, at least in the reader's edition, it's marked as Article 12A, which means there will be a 12B coming. But this is part uh, Article 12A in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. As we always say, the apology means not we're sorry we wrote the Augsburg Confession, but rather is a spirited and in-depth defense of the Augsburg Confession over against the Roman confutation, uh, the, the, um, the theologians of Rome who objected to a great deal of the Augsburg Confession in 1530. Uh, and so then in 1531, uh, Philip Melanchthon, who was kind of Luther's right-hand man, uh, penned the apology, the defense of the Augsburg Confession. So what we have here is the response to the uh, rebuttal of the Augsburg Confession from the Roman Church. Now here's the Lutheran defense, if you will. So if we refer back to the original Augsburg Confession, uh, and I'll just read a little bit here to set this stage for our discussion today. Uh, if you look at Article 12 in the Augsburg Confession, I'll just read a few sentences here. Uh, first in Augsburg Confession, paragraph uh, Article 12, par uh, paragraphs 3 through 6, and this, this is what will be the uh, response to it. Um, now, strictly speaking, repentance consists of two parts. One part is contrition, that is, terrors striking the conscience through the knowledge of sin. The other part is faith, which is born of the gospel or the absolution that and that believe and believes that for Christ's sake sins are forgiven. It comforts the conscience and delivers it from terror. Then good works are bound to follow, which are the fruit of repentance. And then jumping down to, uh, so we've had what the Lutherans teach and then what they reject in paragraph 10 of the Augsburg. Um, Our churches also reject those who do not teach that forgiveness of sins comes through faith, but command us to merit grace through satisfactions of our own. They also reject, reject those who teach that it is necessary to perform works of satisfaction commanded by church law in order to remit eternal punishment or the punishment of purgatory. So there are a number of these technical terms here in this uh, Augsburg Confession article that will be uh, brought up in the apology, terms like repentance, contrition, um, absolute confession, absolution, uh, fruits of repentance, good works, um, faith, uh, works of satisfaction, eternal punishment, purgatory. So these are all terms that will be coming up in our discussion today. And so it's we're going to see what the Lutherans teach over against uh, the Roman Church of that day, and really still to this day. All right. So uh, in this. Uh, set up here of the Augsburg Confession itself. Uh, what are the two parts that are being referred to here, gentlemen? The Lutherans are saying repentance consists of two parts. 
Well, first, that we're sorry for our sins, and then secondly, that we receive uh, absolution. So the, the sorrow and con- contrition is being sorry for your sins and confessing it, and then likewise that you would uh, receive forgiveness, the absolution, uh, from the pastor, as from God himself, telling you that you are forgiven because of what Christ did, not okay. because of what you do yeah. or anybody else, but because of what Christ did for you. So this idea of merit is is what's um, involved here in a in what the Rome what Rome teaches over against what the Lutherans teach. Now we say the two parts then are the confession and the absolution, and the absolution received by faith. So the confession uh, contra- being contrite over our sins, absolution, the word of forgiveness that is received by faith. Now both the Lutherans and the Roman Church will talk about a third thing. What now? But they're two different third things. John, what would you say about that? Yeah, there, there's even a little bit more of a distinction in outline here. Um, uh, this section of the Apology will, will refer to three pieces, and, and that was three pieces of the Roman penitential system. Uh, Pastor Worth was riffing a little bit on our catechism, borrowing from Martin Luther there with contrition and faith being the two-part formula uh, for repentance. The Roman Catholics had uh, contrition, sorrow for sin, that we share with them in a sense, but uh then confession, that is the enumeration of sins to the priest, uh, and then satisfaction, which was uh, an attempt to make amends or to work some uh, type of self-punishment uh, in order to satisfy the wrong, uh, to, mm-hmm. to, to satisfy God uh, for the damage that had been done in the sin itself. And uh, so the Lutheran approach here is, a, is quite a radical departure from that three-part formula, uh, which relied very much on the work of the penitent, uh, first to to achieve an adequate sorrow for sin and contrition, mm-hmm. then to uh, adequately confess and enumerate all those sins to the priest, at least the mortal ones, and finally to adequately perform whatever works of satisfaction mm-hmm. were assigned by the priest. And uh, the Lutherans say this is not scriptural. Uh, what we have here is simply contrition, uh, terrors of conscience, uh, the working of God's law against a sinner, and then the working of God's gospel in the absolution and the faith which receives that gift entirely, the merits of Christ, uh, no merits uh, of the uh, penitent at all. But the Lutherans do talk about a third thing. Well, I think you're referring to the fruits yes. of repentance, namely good, the good works that follow. But as John was pointing out in, in Roman teaching, the idea of making satisfaction is I am doing something that's actually atoning for my sins. Or Meritorious. In some sense, correct. That it, it that it's in some sense earning or earning forgiveness or offsetting my offense. Whereas in, in uh, the scriptural teaching, these are the product of the Holy Spirit who works true repentance and true faith in our hearts, who also then transforms our lives so that we who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, are walking in those good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. And the forgiveness is not conditioned on our good works afterward. Yeah, we saw that in the language there uh, that you just read a moment ago from the uh, the Augustana itself, that the good works necessarily follow. The fruits of repentance uh, come from the, mm-hmm. the heart that's been absolved, that has been reborn to love God and neighbor and to be freed of the burden of a bad conscience. Yeah, I think the term that we sometimes use for that is amendment of life yeah. ought to follow as a fruit of faith, and it does. All right, 
So that kind of uh, sets our stage on that. But I think we really probably ought to back up first with this word repentance. Uh, repentance. And what is the biblical idea? I think how in the New Testament, uh, the word metanoia, and uh, in the Old Testament, the word shuv, were kind of the, the the comprehensive terms for what we call repentance. Either of you want to explain the well, basically, the idea in each of those. Kind of the, the, the change of mind, change of heart, where you realize that what you did was wrong and you are sorry for it. So metanoia involves this idea of, I'm sorry for what I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Lutherans talk about, you can talk about it in a broad sense or a narrow sense. Go ahead and explain it. In the narrower sense, it is this idea of contrition, that I am sorry for what I did. Uh, in the broader sense, it, in, it also involves faith, so that not only am I sorry for my sin, but I also trust in Christ and what he did to atone for my sin and redeem me from my sin. So whether you talk in the narrower sense where it's primarily focusing on the sorrow for sin or in the wider sense where it's that sorrow for sin coupled with faith in our Redeemer Christ. And that's the, the sort of the nuance in the New Testament term of the meta change and the noia about the noose, the mind. So it's a whole change of your mindset uh, that I really, I'm wrong, I was wrong. Uh, and I got to reorient my thinking, have my mind transformed by God. And it's interesting how often in the confessions they talk about terrors of conscience. I mean, this comes up again and again. Luther certainly knew whereof he was speaking on that because yeah. he certainly experienced them. I wonder sometimes if 21st, Amer- 21st century American Christians uh, are as familiar with terrors of conscience as Luther was. Warren, so- I'm glad you mentioned that because as I read through this, and I'm thinking, you know, we sort of just zip zip over the contrition part. Yeah. In my in my own life and in my own way of thinking, I and I in my observation of the church of our day, I don't think we do the contrition much. What do you, and either of you think about that? Yeah, I think that's you know we we look almost at this chapter as something of an antiquated. Uh, or foreign body in our in our doctrine. Now we pass so easily over uh, the confession and absolution and the service as yeah. kind of part of what we Wrote. do. Yeah, and, and which is which is not at all right. Yeah. Um, not that it is our uh, you know working of a sorrow in us that merits forgiveness, but certainly there needs to be a realization that uh, the wages of sin is death. Yeah. And uh, that these sins, which God's law condemns, are no small matter. Yeah. And therefore, Christ is no small matter, or the absolution. And uh, the, the real joy of the Christian life, you know, uh, which David speaks of in Psalm 51, uh, restore to me the joy of your salvation. It's in the forgiveness of sins. Yeah. Uh, so I think the confession really helps us recover that vividness yeah. of we we are being saved and being turned by God from death and destruction to life eternal and to a newness of purpose. I think and it's a the, big the deal. spirit of our age, the zeitgeist, is to not be that troubled in our conscience. Go exactly. ahead, well, that, I was just going to tie into what he said. It's a big deal. And so if if you don't consider sin a big deal, then... Yeah. The crucifixion of Jesus doesn't make any sense. Why did he bother to do that? Right. Why, why would Jesus bother to die? Or why would God the Father be so mean right. as to have his son suffer such an agonizing death when I'm, I'm not that bad? Mm-hmm. So 
but when the law does its work and you realize how bad you are and you experience that terror of conscience, oh no, I'm in big trouble with a holy God who can throw me into hell where I will perish everlastingly. And then you realize, Jesus suffered that for me so that I might go free and be forgiven free because of what he paid the price for me. Then the gospel is a really big deal. And like you said, the joy Mm -hmm. of salvation is tremendous. And and it has to do with how we think about faith, too, which was, you know, something that was very much at issue in in Mm -hmm. this uh, era of the Reformation. Uh, The Catholics uh, looked at what the Lutherans were saying, exalting faith and saying, well, you mean because somebody believes there's a God and Jesus, you know, they're they're saved. And and the Lutherans said, no, no, we're not just talking about uh, book knowledge of things that God has told us. We're talking about a living faith that contends with the terrors of conscience, that rises up and I, and sees your sin, but says Christ is yet greater and yeah. Christ is for mm-hmm. me. Yeah, I just think in our in our age, our, our yeah. we don't feel the law very much, and maybe yeah. we don't rejoice in the gospel as much as we could because we sort of have been inoculated or insulated from both the the sternness of the law and the sweetness of the gospel somehow. I don't know what the answer is, but uh, we we should be struggling. We should be troubled by our sins, and then uh, take great comfort in the in the gospel. Well, as the reformers, we return to the word, and that's that's where both where law, it is. And law and gospel yeah. do their work. Yeah, yeah. Now I mentioned the New Testament word metanoia, uh, change of mind, and then the Old Testament concept is shuv, to do like a U-turn, to turn yeah. back. Uh, from the wrong way you're heading and turn back to God. So uh, those those are just a few comments introducing the term repentance. But um, I want to read now in the Apology just a little bit of paragraphs 1 and 2, which was covered last time, uh, about what the opponents condemn. It says, They condemn the part in which we say that the parts of repentance are contrition and faith. They deny that faith is the second part of repentance. And then Melanchthon says, but this is the very voice of the gospel. Through faith, we obtain the forgiveness of sins. These writers of the confutation condemn this voice of the gospel. Therefore, we can in no way agree to the confutation. So that's a little bit from last week. And now these terms about uh, eternal punishment, temporal punishment, purgatory, attrition, contrition, this will all come up also in our new material today, which I think we probably ought to get into. We're picking it up uh, today at paragraph 11, and I'll read that and ask our guests uh, for some thoughts on that. Paragraph 11. These things happen in the first act of this play. What about confession? What a work there is in the endless listing of sins. Nevertheless, this is in great part devoted to sins against human traditions. So that good minds may be more tortured by this, the adversaries falsely assert that this listing of uh, that this listing is of divine right. They demand this listing under the claim of the divine of divine right. So Melanchthon's going to break this down into three acts, if you will. And the first one is the act of confession. And uh, he highlights one problem with the medieval Roman uh, uh, practice of confession. And uh, this is what we call the enumeration of sins, and then even what kind of sins we're enumerating. Uh, John, tell us what's wrong with this enumeration of sins. Well, one has to, to think a little bit about the whole medieval penitential system. 
that that uh, contrition came first. One had to to truly work sorrow for the sins and and really be sorry for them because of the love of God and not, not just because of the fear of punishment. Yeah. And then one had to go to the priest, and it was held that one had to confess all mortal sins by name. Uh, and to the point where the priest could discern uh, which sin it was and how bad a sin it was, uh, and then assign the appropriate satisfactions. And it was taught that unless one did that, if one concealed any sins from the priest, that uh, that those sins were not absolved. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, one could not go to the Lord's Supper with unconfessed sins, and one dare not die with unconfessed uh, mortal sins. Uh, this was a, a, a very serious uh, matter. Of course, when one searches the scriptures, one finds nowhere the requirement uh, that for Christ's atonement to apply to sin, uh, that the sin had to be enumerated uh, to a priest that absolved, you know, by name. Yeah. How would this torture consciences? This well, Luther is a great example of yeah. this because, of course, there's there's uncertainty about what's a mortal sin and what's a venial sin, and and how can we recount all our errors? You know, as the psalmist says, yeah. "Lord, cleanse me from hidden faults." Uh, Luther uh, would confess all the sins he could recount until his uh, until both he and his confessor were completely exhausted, uh, and uh, practically before he got back to his monk's cell, uh, he would come up with more sins yeah. that he'd sinned on the way or forgotten about. And so if one takes this seriously, uh, if one is in those terrors of conscience where the law is truly condemning, uh, to say that uh, the forgiveness of sins depends on the adequacy and the completeness of one's confession is a damning word. Yeah. You can never be sure yeah. that you've done enough, that you've confessed it all, that your contrition was perfect. And ultimately, then you're left in doubt and in the fear that you will be punished in time and eternity for your sin. But how could this also, in a way, ironically, minimize yeah. sin if you think you can enumerate all your sins? Oh, well, of course. That, and this is where the, the distinction between the mortal and venial sins, the, the mortal sins being the really serious ones and the venial ones being ones that God would let slide, more or yeah. less, uh, uh, that did not drive out the Holy Spirit, that did not mean a departure, of, a complete departure from the faith. Um, you know, they had to draw a line somewhere, uh, else one would never get out of confession. Yeah. And uh, where that line lies, then, is a matter of much debate and, and uh, great volumes day. of work. Uh, beginning in the medieval era, even even up to this time. And even among ourselves, you know, I can think, I'm not that bad. I haven't murdered anybody. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I haven't committed adultery or I haven't raped anybody. I haven't robbed any banks. I must be okay because I think I haven't done anything really bad. Like the rich big. young ruler. All these commandments I have kept. From yeah. my youth, indeed. And then Jesus says, well, just, you just lack one thing, you know, and helps him realize he didn't even keep the first commandment. And for us, too, to realize it's not just murder, but the Lord says, whoso hateth his brother is a murderer. And, and same thing with, you know, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery Or your, your sins of omission. There well, you, you fail to do right. Exactly. So, so in terms of your your question about is there a way to that this works to kind of minimize uh -huh. sin? I think uh, to this day, not only among Catholics but among the general populace, uh -huh. we tend to minimize sin because we think if I haven't done anything really big and really bad in 
human eyes, mm-hmm. then I'm okay with God too, because I didn't murder mm-hmm. and rob banks and so on, and realize that God actually sees the heart. So even our, our thoughts and our desires mm-hmm. are sinful and make us uh, sinful in the eyes of a holy God, where, and that's where we really need forgiveness. Yeah. Now here, Melanchthon talks about the problem of the enumerating of sins, but he also says there's a problem with what is considered the sins you need to enumerate. Uh, what would that be here? Well, he mentions that in, in medieval Roman Catholicism, they made a bigger deal about humanly devised uh, rules than about God's own law. Yeah. So so you could have people spend all day worrying about whether they... Had a bit of sausage during Lent. Or... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it wasn't so much about God's holy commands, which we break, but about the... You know, you have to fast on this day and only eat fish or whatever, or whatever the human tradition is. Yeah. So that that's another problem with the first act, which is confession. Now in paragraph 12, we move on to the second act, which is the absolution. What's the problem there? Melanchthon writes about the adversaries. In the meantime, they speak coldly about absolution, which is truly of divine right. They falsely assert that the sacrament itself... Uh, bestows grace by the mere performance of one act, ex opera operato, without a good disposition on the part of the one using it. They do not mention faith grasping the absolution and comforting the conscience. This is truly what is generally called departing before the mysteries. So, uh, Warren, what does what does he mean by here? They're departing before the mysteries. <laughs> well, I had to kind of look that one up myself to to see what he was talking about. But in the sense that there was a time when in the church, before you got to the part of the service where you celebrated the Holy Supper, the Lord's Supper, that catechumens were dismissed, mm-hmm. and so it'd be like being dismissed before the the main event, but before and in this case before the absolution. And John had a really good uh, quotation from the Council of Trent on this. I don't know if you wanted to bring that in, in here less than or, a minute. If you can do that, yeah. Uh, and this is obviously a little bit later, the Council of Trent, uh, but they they really minimize even the absolution yeah. here in uh, in repentance uh, with faith, which to which faith would attach, and emphasize instead is the substance of the sacrament, the thing that really matters, the contrition the confession, and the satisfaction. Uh-huh. That is, it's all on you Yeah, when you're there and they, in the confessional. They touch very lightly on, on the importance uh, of the absolution the, and of the faith that receives the absolution. Pass over the part where God's doing his work and where faith has a foothold. And we'll talk about this term ex opera operato, which has nothing to do with Oprah Winfrey <laughs> or a, a winkle in time. So uh, we'll come to back, back to that uh, After this break, you're listening to Concord Matters here on KFUO. Concordia University, Wisconsin and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. 
Listen to AM850 KFUO and KFUO.org each Wednesday in Lent for live Lenten worship services at 11 a.m. from Peace Lutheran Church in St. Louis. Join KFUO, Senior Pastor Dennis Caston, and the members of Peace for these special Lenten worship services. Again, that's each Wednesday morning at 11 during Lent on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. The sexual revolution has come a long way in the last 10 years. Where is it headed in the next 10? Tuesday on Issues Etc., Dr. Mark Regneris, author of Cheap Sex, will be back for part two of a conversation on men, women, and the mating market. We'll also get Megan Ullman's reaction to a New York Times column titled How to Talk About Abortion. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. This week on The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah. We'll learn about how supporting volunteer work benefits congregations and communities. And we have tips for parents to keep kids engaged in Holy Week services. It's Camp Week. We get to meet Lutheran camps around the country and also visit with our friends at Bethesda Lutheran Communities. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO. Underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. And here comes Siva again. Picked him clean. Peyton Siva Jr. is one of the most prolific point guards in the history of University of Louisville basketball. In 2013, he led his team to an NCAA national championship. Siva grew up in a family with a history of alcohol and drug abuse, but used his championship platform to encourage others facing the same life struggles. A youth pastor played a major role in Peyton's life, leading Bible studies Siva attended each week, and each day sending him a text message with a Bible passage to encourage him. When an ESPN reporter interviewed Siva, he asked about the daily text messages, specifically the one for that day. Without hesitation, Siva quoted Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. We are back on... Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Charles Henriksen. My two guests today, Warren Worth and John Sias, were discussing Article 12a of the uh, Apology of the Augsburg Confession on repentance. And uh, here Melanchthon is going through the problems with the Roman Catholic medieval practice, and to a large extent, still the practice today, on, uh, on uh, how they teach and practice uh, confession and penance yeah, penance is the term that was used. I think now they call it, what, sacrament of reconciliation? Because penance sounds too much of a downer, I think. Uh, yeah, so that they, that they, the Lutherans are saying there are two parts in uh, repentance, the, the, the contrition and the faith, the confession and the absolution. And the Roman Catholic Church didn't like that. They said it's confession, and then they give a little nod, I guess, to absolution, um, but the big thing is the works of satisfaction, and that's the problem. All right, so we've gone through in uh, paragraphs 11 and 12 
uh, about the first act confession, problem of enumerating sins being forced upon you, and even sins against human traditions. Second act, the absolution, that that was not really emphasized that much, and nor was the aspect of faith receiving the absolution emphasized, but rather there was this, uh, by the mere performance of the act, uh, the ex opera operato, which means uh, from the act having been acted uh, in the Latin, ex opera, uh, the ablative case there, and then operato, the participle, by the act having been acted, um, that merely the just going to the sacrament of penance or the sacrament of the altar was enough to effect the benefits without any corresponding faith. Am I explaining that correctly? Yeah, and again, all part of the, the medieval mechanics of merit. Yeah. Uh, that, well, you, you did the thing. You did what, what you were supposed to, and so the outcome is, is what uh, was assured. Mm -hmm. And really, the absolution wasn't enough uh, in the practice of penance in the Roman Church. The big emphasis was on uh, the works of satisfaction as the third act, which he gets to in paragraph 13. The third act of this play concerning satisfactions remains. It contains the most confused discussions. The adversaries imagine that eternal punishments are switched to the punishments of purgatory and teach that a part of them is forgiven by the power of the keys and that a part is to be redeemed by means of satisfactions. So we've got several technical terms here. Uh, satisfactions, um, eternal punishments versus uh, punishments of purgatory. We've got the term power of the keys. What is meant, now the word to satisfy something means you've done enough, right? Uh, so satisfying, what's satisfying, who's satisfying whom, how? Well, well, we're trying to satisfy a holy God whom we've offended and grieved by our transgressions. And so the question is, how can we do that? And, you know, for us, believing what God says in the gospel, Christ did it for us. He made satisfaction for our sins, and no creature could do that. Not you, not me, no one else, but Christ could do that. In Rome, the idea is you do do that. You do make satisfaction for your sins, particularly uh, if if not for the eternal punishments, then at least for the temporal punishments. And temporal. What, what do you mean by eternal and temporal? Go ahead. Okay, so one might one might say, well, okay, you don't deserve to go to hell now, but we're not done with you yet. Okay, so whether in this life, in this time, or hereafter in purgatory, which again is not a scriptural concept, but one invented by Rome, that there's this in-between place. So you're not good enough to go to heaven, you're not bad enough to go to hell. There's a place where you need to be purged of the remaining guilt, uh, at least the temporal punishment, punishment for those sins that you committed, and you've got to suffer. And so you're going to spend time and who knows, a long, long, long time suffering in a hell-like place, but eventually you'll get out. And you'll get out sooner if you do things in this life before you die to make up for your sins. And after you die, other people can maybe do things. Mm -hmm. you know, if they pay money, say masses for the repose of your soul, things like this. So the Roman Catholic Church has established a system whereby you have to do things, prayers, uh, extra good works, um, and and paying money and things like this to try to lessen the time that you will spend in purgatory 
to take care of those temporal uh, so the absolution could the absolution would remit your eternal punishment. You'd still end up in heaven eventually. Eventually, yeah. but, <laughs> maybe. But first, you got to work off the bad stuff that wasn't covered. Now, I, I think there were probably some people who could go straight to uh, heaven and not pass go and not, uh, or that wouldn't have to spend time in in jail uh, and could go straight to the head of the class. Is that right? Well, and that's uh, we see this uh, word coming up, uh, super irrigation here, that you can not only do the works that are necessary to clean yourself up, but you can maybe do more than was required. And so a person who was a, a saint or a very holy person, a monk, as uh, Martin Luther strove to be early in life, uh, would do that to, to add to this treasury of merits, uh, these extra works of goodness that could then be assigned to other people, perhaps. So some of the really good saints could go straight to heaven and not have to spend time in detention. That was the, that was the thought, yeah. And the last thing that he was saying there, the treasury of the saints, I think our listeners need to understand that. So the idea is if you do more than the good works that are necessary to, to go to heaven for yourself, there's extra that, you, up in the that are piled up, like a big bank account, that the Pope gets to dis- distribute to people. So, and so... Poor schnooks like me, you know, I'm a, I'm a poor, miserable sinner, but, you know, John's yeah. done more than enough good works for him to go to heaven, so I get some of his if I pray to him or do certain okay. extra good works. Uh, I know, I think we're all a little overdrawn. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the works of satisfaction, which can be satisfied in a number of ways that we're going to get to. So, and in, in, in pastoral practice, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I've got the eternal punishments taken care of, the eternal guilt, fine. But that really, it really was more about the spending the time in purgatory, which is like a mini hell, I guess. And uh, so it really didn't, the absolution didn't cover, comfort people too much. Do I get that right? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, obviously always going to be a concern. And, and in the medieval time, you know, probably the overriding concern. Uh, and maybe in some ways, it's like our uh, the time in which we live where, where salvation in terms of eventually getting to heaven somehow is practically assumed. Yeah. But then we got other stuff to deal with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's move on here a little bit. Uh, let's see, where have we left? Oh, paragraph 14 now. About the, Warren, you mentioned the works of supererogation. Um, further, they add that satisfactions should be extraordinary works, supererogation. Uh, they make these consist of most of most foolish observances, such as pilgrimages, rosaries, or similar observances that do not have God's command. So like to make a pilgrimage to Rome and, and to kneel on the steps uh, there and or to pray the rosary, you know, your priest would assign you this, say these many rosaries and so forth, uh, or view some relics. Uh, these were the kinds of works that would get you some, what, some time off from... Uh, from detention right. of purgatory. Hopefully it gets you out of purgatory somewhat faster. Yeah. And then in uh, uh, the next one, now, so that was to um, to uh, uh, pay off these, these temporal punishments, um, but then you can even pay off the purgatory, I guess. Paragraph 15, uh, then just as they redeem purgatory by means of satisfaction, so a scheme was created for redeeming satisfactions. So you didn't have to do all these satisfactions, I guess, uh, which was most abundant in re- in revenue. Now there's a little dig. Right. Uh, 
They sell indulgences, which they interpret as the pardon of satisfactions. This revenue is not only from the living, but is much more plentiful from the dead. Nor do they redeem the satisfactions of the dead only by indulgences, but also by the sacrifice of the Mass. Why do they bring in revenue here, John Sias? Well, this this treasury of merit, uh, which exists in theory in the heavenly realm, you know, can kind of be converted to uh, treasury on earth. Uh, with uh, once the idea uh, of indulgences became tied to suitable donations, uh, this was quite profitable for the Roman Church. They built Saint Peter's. A absolutely, uh, drained the wealth of Germany. Uh, yeah. Uh, to to build these edifices uh, and and all because pious people uh, thought of their relative suffering in purgatory they they felt the weight of their sins and and what did the church do they said well for a suitable payment uh, you can be set free but of course Luther and the reformers see how much as the, at the same time this is enriching the church in Rome it is it is draining out uh, the the merit and worth of Christ Himself. And it was really allowing Christians to bypass repentance. Absolutely. That was Luther's first problem with indulgences. He wasn't quite totally Lutheran yet, but he saw these certificates were just letting people skip right over going to confession. So this whole system that seems to make sin very serious, you know, well, you're going to spend millions of years in purgatory for this stuff. Yeah. In the end, because it's a human scheme, yeah. it, it turns around making sin a light matter. Yeah. And uh, the eternal redemption a light thing, uh, people can do what they want and, and pay the fine. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the work of Christ is denigrated thereby. Yes. So, so both ways, you're talking about the satisfactions, indulgences, and this things, and even the sacrifice of the Mass, because... You know, the Roman teaching there is that every time the priest would uh, say the words of institution and uh, consecrate the elements for Holy Communion, Jesus is re-crucified in a real, though unbloody way to pay for the sins of the living and the dead. As though what Jesus said on, at Calvary, it is finished, is not true. It yeah. isn't finished. It isn't paid for. We have to continually be paying off sins for the living and the dead, and you never are through with that. You're never done, and you can never be sure that enough has been done. Mm -hmm. And it's saying Jesus did not do it all once and for all on Good Friday. Mm -hmm. and, and so that, that really is a terrible, terrible teaching. Plus, in terms of even receiving this sacrament, you're paying the priest to say Mass. Whether anybody receives the body and blood right. of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, they don't care. It's a, it's a private Mass. It's a private Mass, uh, and it's a moneymaker, and it's the idea that, well, your loved one just died. So, and, and I know this has happened even in the last 20 years. I know of examples where somebody says, I've... I've uh, had a mass said for your dead relative by the priest, you know, and that's with a donation. So uh, this this is not just the 1500s. This is still yeah. going on today. All right, let's move on. And Warren, what you were just saying about how the redeeming work of Christ is being uh, lost here in the shuffle, uh, paragraph 16. <clears throat> in a word, the topic of satisfactions is infinite. The doctrine of the righteousness of faith in Christ and the benefit of Christ lies buried among these scandals, for we cannot list everything, and doctrines of devils. Therefore, all good people understand that the doctrine of the learned persons and canon lawyers about repentance has been criticized for a use, useful and godly purpose. 
So really, it's it's the central article. The Christian faith was getting obscured or even lost here, left on the shelf while we're doing other yeah. other human inventions. And by the way, John, uh, this mention here of canon lawyers, uh, I was thinking of you. <laughs> oh dear, because you are the you are the high priest of canon lawyers in the Missouri Synod, are you not? Well, now there's a title. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, it, it, I, you know, I, it is something people say from time to time. But you know, in the in the Missouri Synod, the, the thing that is that is chief uh, is is the word, and, and yes. all else, you know, serves to serve that. But what is, what is meant here by canon lawyers are not people who. Uh, have lawsuits about exploding howitzers. Yeah, no, it's one end there. What is a canon law? What is what are canon lawyers? Uh, it's it's the the decretals of of Rome and a quite extensive collection of of laws and and penalties for this and that uh, requirements uh, for all these human mechanisms that surrounded the working of the the Roman Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know who could remit sins for what and what kinds of sins and for whom. Uh, what had to go to the Pope in Rome? Yeah, uh, yeah. All that is there. And sorry. Right, so uh, the thing that Melanchthon's emphasizing is in all this mess, we're losing Christ, and that's the that's the most important thing. And, and where Christ is diminished, then consciences are not comforted. Right. Right. Yeah. That's the main thing, isn't it? Yes. Uh, so Melanchthon's saying, let's keep the main thing, the main thing. Now, he goes on to list some false teachings, some wrong teachings. He's got 11 of them here. Uh, maybe we'll get to all of them. I don't know. But um, And he says they're, they're not only wrong from Scripture, but even the church fathers uh, did not teach these wrong teachings. So going on then, and I'll read a few here. Um, For the following teachings are clearly false and foreign, not only to Holy Scripture, but also to the church fathers. Number one, through good works, apart from grace, we merit grace from the divine covenant. We've already talked about the false idea of merit. Uh, number two, we merit grace by attrition. <laughs> What's the distinction in the, the fine distinction between attrition and contrition, either one of you? Well, attrition is imperfect contrition. So John had referred to it before. In, in the Roman Catholic system, what the first part of this is contrition, and it needs to be perfect contrition, which means not just being afraid of punishment, not just being afraid That's of- That's attrition. Right. Contrition is being afraid of, of right. getting punished. Exactly. So a perfect contrition is that you're sorry for your sins from love of God. Love of God, yeah. And if you don't have that love of God, then it's if it's only afraid of going to hell or not being saved, that's not good enough. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to try to get to all 11 of these, so we'll see if we can do that in the 10 minutes, 9 minutes that remain. All right. Uh, paragraphs 3 and 4. Merely hating the, I'm not Paragus, it's Paragus 19 and 20, but in the list it's Numbers 3 and numbers three and 4 of the false teachings. First, uh, number 3, the false teaching, merely hating the crime is enough for the blotting out of sin. And then number 4, we obtain forgiveness of sins because of contrition and not by faith in Christ. I think that's pretty self-explanatory, that it's putting the emphasis on your work of contrition, not on Christ's work, of right and part of it is are you sorry enough and are yeah. you sorry for the right reason yeah and this is not only a roman catholic doctrine this is this is a common human idea someone comes and says well i'm sorry that i hit your car and you say well i think you should be a little sorrier yeah um you know we all think innately the opinion of the law is we got to work it off yeah and someone apologizes to me are you sorry enough to for me to let this go 
the the warning of the apology here is for us all. Yeah. Uh, nah, this isn't about that. It's about the wrath of God and the atonement that's worked for us in Christ. Right. It's his merits, not ours. All right. Uh, number five in the list uh, as a false teaching, the power of the keys. We would also use the term the office of the keys. Um, the power of the keys provides the forgiveness of sins before the church, but not before God. And then uh, number six, sins are not forgiven before God by the power of the keys. Rather, the power of the keys has been set up to transfer eternal punishments to temporal, to put certain satisfactions upon consciences, to set up new acts of worship, and to put consciences in debt to such satisfactions and acts of worship. Let's talk a little bit about here about the this teaching, the false teaching, that the power of the keys provides forgiveness uh, before the church, but not before God. Is there anything in, that you can think of in the scripture that says that that teaching is wrong? Well, what does Jesus himself say when he talks to the apostles? You know, if you forgive anybody their sins, they are forgiven. If you uh, retain their sins, their sins are retained. Jesus says, whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. And so, you know, we, we believe is that when the called minister of Christ is dealing by Christ's divine command, uh, absolving those who repent of their sins and are willing to amend and, and not forgiving, retaining the sins of those who are impenitent as long as they do not repent. You know, this is as sure and certain in heaven also as if Christ our dear Lord doeth as himself. And so that what we're saying is Christ says that the sins you forgive are forgiven by God in heaven. Christ says those sins that uh, you do not forgive because a person is impenitent are not forgiven by God in heaven. And they're making a distinction like, well, no, you can be forgiven on earth, but not be forgiven before and that, God in heaven. And you quoted the scriptures that I was thinking of also, where Christ says, whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Uh, so these sins are forgiven in heaven. And what is meant, John, by the power or office of the keys? What, is, what do keys have to do with this? Well, it's, it's that peculiar power given to uh, Christ's church on earth to bind and release sins. The, the loosing key, the binding key. Uh, is kind of the image or the catechetical uh, view that's been used of uh, of that very passage. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed. Uh, the loosing key is the absolution uh, for penitent sinners. Uh, your sin is forgiven. It's true yeah. before God. Uh, the binding key is uh, the word that the church sadly has to proclaim to those who are impenitent, yeah. who want to remain in their sins, who don't uh, want forgiveness, but would rather go on their own way, to say, uh, your sin is not forgiven. It's bound to you as long as you do not repent. Mm -hmm. uh, the message being not go away, but repent <laughs> urgently. Okay. Uh, receive what Christ has uh, has here for you. Yeah, and uh, we have that about the office of the keys in the small catechism under confession. Absolutely. Great yeah. stuff. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and it, in our catechism, we teach it Based on the where is this written on the scriptures, it's Jesus himself says that these sins are forgiven in heaven. I think I'll go with him. Yes. And that's what... Besides we, the canon law. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. Um, number seven, the listing of offenses in confession as taught by the adversaries is necessary according to divine right. That's the false teaching, that it's absolutely necessary that you have to enumerate all of them. We've already talked about that. Uh, number eight... Canonical satisfactions are necessary for redeeming the punishment of purgatory, or they benefit as a, as a compensation for blotting out guilt. This is how uninformed persons understand it. 
so that the emphasis was on not the word of forgiveness, but on you doing works of satisfaction right. to get time off of purgatory, yeah? Yes. Any comments on that? Well, yeah, the, the Roman doctrine is, is somewhat subtle when they get into explaining it, that the satisfactions are against the temporal penalties that Christ really remits mm -hmm. the guilt. But uh, as they say, how, how's anybody but someone very clever going to figure that out and the stick to it? The impact on the average person is... Yeah, if you got to go say 10 off. Hail Marys, you think you got to do it, so you get the forgiveness that the priest is talking about. Good. And, um, uh, yeah, we've covered that a little bit, about the redeeming the punishment of purgatory, to take time off of purgatory. And these next couple are also covered, um, we covered these earlier, number nine, uh, without a good disposition on the part of the one using it, that is, without faith in Christ, the reception of the sacrament of repentance by the outward act, ex opera operato, obtains grace. So this is the idea that you get the grace just by the mere performance of the work, apart from faith. Even with, if you don't believe in your heart, it doesn't matter. Just go through the outward act. Okay. So we talked about that also. And then number 10, uh, our souls are freed from purgatory through indulgences by the power of the keys. All right, we covered that. Now, number 11 was the only one here I did not understand at first glance. And uh, this will be our last one we cover here today. Uh in the reservation of cases, not only canonical punishment, but also the guilt should be reserved for one who is truly converted. Please, either one of you, explain what is meant by the reservation of cases and then what's wrong in this sentence. Okay, with reservation, the idea is that the local parish priest does not have the authority to forgive every sin. So some sins are so bad you have to go to the bishop. Some are so bad you have to go to the pope himself because in Rome only the pope has the ultimate authority to forgive all sins. Because he's been given the power of the keys. Right. And, so and that's why on the papal seal you have the crossed keys. Uh -huh. The successor to St. Peter supposedly. And so some sins must be reserved to a higher authority. Now John, I think you had a comment earlier about what that means then uh, for one who is truly converted. Right, yeah, yeah, they say that, you know, in a case of one who's truly converted, it's it's a terrible idea that that case would be reserved to some higher authority in the church. Um, you know, what really determines if the binding key or the loosing key should be applied, if sins should be a forgiven, the loosing key, or, or if the sinner should be told, your sins are not forgiven yet, uh, it's not how bad the sin is, it's whether there's contrition and, and yeah. the signs of faith or the hope of forgiveness um and uh and so here uh they're saying it's a terrible thing that you would tell a penitent sinner uh you know who's saying god forgive me uh say no i'm sorry i can't uh that has to go to the pope you're gonna have to go to rome and and mm -hmm. get that dealt with mm -hmm. up there yeah um you know the, well, we're coming to the end of our hour and ironically in in uh explaining all the false teachings We've kind of let Jesus get lost in the shuffle a little bit uh, in necessarily debunking these false teachings. Brothers and sisters listening today, don't let Jesus get lost in the shuffle. Uh, go to your church for Palm Sunday this, this Sunday and for Holy Week, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and the glorious day of Easter. Uh, Jesus is not there to be lost in the shuffle, but he's the main thing. It's all about Jesus. Thank you for listening today to Concord Matters.